transgressions of my heart. Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And Father, we thank you today that the church will hear what the Spirit would say to the church this night. Thank you for drawing us back to you. Thank you today, Father, that we will be undistracted in our loyalty and in our affection. Thank you that you're a faithful God that comes after us, even when we go away from you. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. But thank you that you're also a God that walks in truth. And you confront us when we are not walking in your way. And Father, we thank you that you love us enough to accept us just like we are. But love us too much to let us stay the way that we are. So our minds are alert, our hearts open to receive your word. Speak to us, Lord, and we'll be better for it. In Jesus' name. And everyone say it. Amen. Amen. Well, you can be seated in the presence of the Lord and in the uh, company of God's saints. Could you take your Bible and could you hold it up and uh, make this declaration after me? Say this after me. This is my Bible. Bible. Though there are many in the world, this one is mine. I can be what it says I can be. I can do what it says I can do. I can have what it says I can have. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Because I am a diligent seeker of God My life will be better because I have heard the word of faith. Do you believe that? I believe that. Let's make our lives better by hearing the word of God. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let me first thank the Lord for the privilege of being here tonight. And we have journeyed since Sunday morning. And we have now come to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. As we begin uh, in this particular chapter, we have now looked at Hosea's world and we have seen that God has demanded Hosea join himself to a woman named Gomer and to bring forth children of harlotries. And our first big ideal was that when you and I join ourselves like Israel did to uh, idols, Baal and Balaam idols, uh, and worship false gods, then it shows up in the third and the fourth generation. Idolatry, misdirected affection and love, looking to anything else as our source and as our resource. It's called idolatry, and it affects the next generation. It's the only sin in the Ten Commandments that not only the sinner, but also the next generation bore the consequences. We saw even after they came out of 70 years of captivity that the children themselves could speak half the tongue of Judah, but they knew the tongue of Ashdod, Ammon, and the Moabites. We don't want a generation that cannot quote the scriptures, cannot speak of spiritual things. And we have to ask the question, why is it that 90% of all high school students that were raised in the church, when they walk away from the church, when they graduate from high school and come limping back about age 30, you have to ask, why are the, is there that 12-year gap? And during those years, eight, 90% of our youth are making some of the most critical decisions that they'll carry them the rest of their life, who they're going to marry, 
what career they're going to choose, what direction they're going in life. We had to ask that question. Could it be that we've modeled and given ourselves over to false ideologies, false thoughts, things that do not belong to God? The disaster was that Hosea and Gomer began to have to raise children of whoredom. And he calls them children of harlotry because Gomer is faithful for a while. And then about the time that she thinks everything is smooth, she goes out and she gets pregnant again. And so they have their three children, Jezreel, Loami, and Lahurama. And in chapter two, we saw that Gomer, which represents Israel and also the church in our day, has now begun to attribute all of her success and all of her resource to someone else. She says, Baal gave me my bread in chapter two, verse number five. He gave me my water. He gave me my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. And we ran a parallel on Sunday night and we looked at how many people are looking to something else other than God for their word, their bread. They're looking to God uh, for, for, for their bread, their life. They're looking to something else other than God for their water, the washing of water by the word. They're looking to something else for their wool, their covering. God's people have now looked for something else for their worship. There's a lot of worship leaders who are imitating what's going on in the world in an effort to be contemporary and relevant. And God says, woe to you who go to Babylon for your help. And friends, when we become so contemporary that we don't know whether we're watching a performance or whether we're being led in worship, something is wrong in the church. Now we are being entertained sometime on Sunday night when contests and, and, uh, and, and great uh, compet- uh, competitions in worship. And uh, worship was never meant to be competitive. I hate to just stand up and just rail on all popular television. Worship was not meant to be entertaining people. In Thanksgiving, we respond to the goodness of God. In praise, we respond to the greatness of God. But it's in worship alone that we respond to the holiness of God. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, says the word. The Lord is good. So give thanks unto the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. Thanksgiving is a response to the goodness of God. But we worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship is those intimate moments that we just experienced. When the bride and the bridegroom appear in the most holy place and the veil drops and the door is shut. And the bride is very much aware that she is in the presence of a holy God that doesn't just want to stimulate her, but he wants to impregnate her. He wants to put some of his character, some of his seed, where we become partakers of his divine nature. Not only wants to impregnate us, but he wants to transform us. And worship is a transformational experience where we with open face behold him. And we are changed into that same image from glory to glory. Worship is never for competition. It is never performance. There's always an intimacy between the bridegroom And the bride, where there is impartation, transformation. And it's those fleeting moments when we get to that place. And we know that we leave that place changed because he has imparted something into our spirit. Worship can never be relegated to just a sanctuary. Because if worship is only the song that we sing, then we miss worship. Worship is the life that we live. Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice. 
That's worship because the first time worship is mentioned in the King James Bible, it is a man that's going to go sacrifice his son. His name is Abraham. His son's name is Isaac. And he said, we're going yonder to worship. The first time in English, the word worship is used is involving sacrifice. And now our worship is not somebody else. Our worship is when we present our body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. One translation says it's our reasonable worship to him. Our worship is not just what we do in the sanctuary. Our worship is also how we live every day. My life becomes an incense unto him. And Micah, one of the uh, minor prophets says, and he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice. When I do justice, that's worship. When I love mercy, that's worship. When I walk humbly with my God, that's worship. And you say, well, that couldn't be worship. Well, look at the previous verses in Micah 6, because in Micah 6, 5, 6, and 7, he says, take away your song, take away your feast days, take away your incense. He says, shall I call this worship? He said, I'll show you what is good and what is what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. God comes back in Hosea chapter 2. And it repeats again that I am the source in verse number eight. I'm the one that gave you your grain. I'm the one that gives you the word. He said, I'm the one that gave you your silver. (laughs) Uh, And that is your redemption. I'm the one that gave you your gold. I am the one who gave your, your divine character. And he said, but now you've taken all of that and you prepared it for Baal. He said, now, if you'll return to me, if you'll return to me in verse number nine, he says, I will restore your grain. He said, I'll restore your wine. I'll restore your covering, your wool. I'll restore your linen, your proper worship. And he says, and if you don't, I'll uncover you and your lewdness and your lovers and your new moons. And I will not accept them anymore. We ended yesterday by seeing a woman, Israel, following her God, calling him now master and Lord. And he says, listen, I want you to call me husband in 216. Because God says that. Lord can be a title of authority, but husband is an expression of relationship. And friends, God wants us in a relationship with him. And the word husband is a loving relationship. And in verse number 16, chapter two, he says, and thou will call me uh, husband and no longer just call me master. It's one thing to have God rule your life. It's one thing to have him love you to life. And I want to feel his love. I want to know that he's always seeking my highest good all the time. And then we see him calling his betrothed back and breaking covenant because the issue in America and the issue in the church is that we have violated our covenant with God. So last night we wound up on our knees and before God in his face and we wound up being called back to covenant. And we said, as we end our little review here, that covenant is not just a one-way expression. Most word of faith and charismatic people believe that they're in covenant with God, but I believe that they are born again. And it's possible to be born again and not be in covenant. Because to be born again, all you have to do is believe that Jesus is Lord and confess with with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. He quickens and makes alive your spirit. And now you enter into the kingdom of God. But to enter into covenant, there needs to be an exchange of terms, conditions, and promises. And most of us, we claim all the promises that God has given us. But what have you promised God? Because in a marriage, the bride 
groom just doesn't say to the bride what he's going to do. But the minister will always ask the bride, what are you going to do? And what will you do? And until you have made a commitment to him, you are not in covenant. I've stood for a long time in an uncomfortable moment in a wedding. Well, I've asked a bride or a groom, will you do this? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And there was silence. And I'll wait. Because we ain't going no further until you say something. And if you ain't going to say something, then we'll just dismiss everybody. We'll go eat cookies and punch or cake and nuts and mints and talk about you real bad. <laughs> because before we leave that office, I asked the bride and the groom, are you ready to enter into covenant? You don't have to do this. Before we leave the office, I ask them, do you want to do this? We can sneak you out the back door. I never have had to give this speech. My wife said, what would you do if somebody wanted to go out the back door? I said, I'll take them. And I said, I got a speech prepared in my wedding ceremony already. I'll say, friends, we thought we came here for a wedding today. But uh, one of the partners decided that they wanted to leave and I'd name it whether it was a bride or the groom. I said, however, there is cake and punch and nuts prepared in the back. So... First of all, stop by the gift table and collect your gift. It's all in my notes. And then I said, and let's go to the back and eat up all the cake and the punch and the nuts and talk about them real bad. <laughs> Covenant is an exchange of promises. Covenant is an exchange. And many Christians want eternal life, but they don't want to promise God that they're going to do anything with their life for him. It's only when you and I begin to tell God what you and I are going to do. I'm going to worship every week with the saints of God. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to give a tenth of my income. We have not entered into covenant. And it's only when we're in covenant that the covenant promises work for us. It's not just enough to know what he has promised us. We need to know what we have promised him. Now, follow me. And we have come to Hosea chapter three. Hosea chapter three, we now come and we find this word of the Lord written in Hosea chapter three and verse number one. It says, then the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. And just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who looked after other gods, like and love the raisin cakes uh, of the pagans. God tells Hosea, go get that girl. She's loved by other lovers, but I want you to demonstrate that I love Israel, even though she's eating the bread of another God. So in Hosea chapter three, verse two, it says, so I brought her. So I brought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver And for one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days and you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be towards you. I'll stay with you many days and I'll not ever have another woman. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or a prince, without a sacrifice or um, sacred pillar without an ephod or a teraphim. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and shall seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord 
and his goodness in the latter days. Chapter three is real short because it's a picture. And what it is, it's a picture that one day, even after having three babies after wedlock, Gomer disappears again. Husband is gone and got her. Brought her home, said, call me husband. And she goes astray again. And God says, go get that woman. Because I want you to show Israel, no matter how much she goes astray, I'm still after her. And I want you to hear Jesus' voice this week. No matter how much the church goes astray, he's still after his bride. And and, And Hosea goes out and begins to do a search. I'm sure that he searched at the Four Seasons initially and at the Ritz-Carlton and he couldn't find her there. Too many stars on those hotels. He goes over to the Marriott and to the Hilton. Can't find her there. Goes over to the Hampton Inn where we're staying. The courtyard. Couldn't find her there. He goes to the Residence Inn and the Homewood. Couldn't find her there. The Knights Inn. Couldn't find her there. Even goes down to the Super 8 and the Motel 6 where you keep the light on. <laughs> Can't find her there. Makes his way down to the red light district where all the motels are, where the prostitutes hang out. And he can't even find her there. Finally, as he wanders through the town, he goes down to the slave quarters. And as he approaches the slave quarters, he hears the men bidding on a woman. As he draws near, the bidding is going on. And people are selling them slaves and themselves into slavery when their debt has been so run up that they can't pay their own debt. And the only way to settle their debt is to sell themselves as a slave. And he looks up on the slave block and there is his wife. She's probably beat up, riddled with disease. She may even be sick in the picture. She's in a defiled way and men are bidding for her. They're probably laughing and jeering. And the bidding begins to go up. 13 pieces of silver. Somebody says 14. Somebody else says 14 and a half pieces of silver. Hosea says 15 pieces of silver. Somebody says 15 pieces of silver and a quarter of a homer of barley. And he says 15 pieces of silver and a half a homer of barley. Somebody else says 15 pieces of silver and a homer of barley. And he says 15 pieces of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And all of a sudden the bidding stops. After no one bids, the man says, so to that man for 15 pieces of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Hosea goes and he takes his wife, grabs her by the hand. And he says, come home and abide with me. You don't need other lovers because I am your husband. What are you doing with another man anyway when you already got a husband? What are you doing with another man when I've already provided for you? Why are you chasing other things when I'm the one that healed you when you were sick and stayed with you? Why are you chasing somebody else when I'm the one that put money in your pocket? Why are you chasing someone else when I'm the one that put clothes on your back? Why are you chasing somebody else and calling them God and your resource and your source when I'm the one that put food in your refrigerator? When you thought that there was no way out, am I not the one that came and cleaned up all the mess in your bills and your credit cards? Why are you looking for somebody else? Come home, 
Be my wife and I will be your husband and I will abide with you for many days. God then turns from that picture of Hosea with Gomer and he turns to Israel and he says, and you Israel, because you've done this thing, you're going to go into slavery. And there's going to be some time Israel now that you're going to go into punishment. And verse number four is a prophetic word to Israel that actually happened. He says in verse number four to the children of Israel, in those days you will be without a prince. In those days you will be without sacrifice. In those days you will be without a pillar and without an ephod and without a teraphim. You know, in 722 BC, Israel, the northern kingdom, all 10 tribes went into captivity. The Assyrians came in and took them into captivity and they never came out of captivity again. We call them the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They disappeared and the majority of them have not been seen again. Judah lasted in the southern kingdom a little bit longer to about 587 BC, 587 BC. And then the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem. And after a besieging of Jerusalem where actually cannibalism was going on, they got to the place where all they had to eat was asses, heads, and doves dung. They were eating their babies as was prophesied by the prophets. And they came out of there, a weak anemic people by the Babylonians and were dragged into Babylonian captivity. Many died of starvation. And then in Babylonian captivity, they were overrun by the Persians. And there they stayed in Babylonian captivity till 520 BC. They stayed there for 70 years. They came back out and rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah. And then eventually the law was restored by Ezra in about 458 BC. And then Nehemiah 444 BC restores the walls and rebuilds the gates. And they're in the land for about 400 additional years. But by the time the New Old Testament period closes under Malachi, many people believe that Malachi is a title rather than the name of a person. And many believe that it was Ezra himself that wrote the book of Malachi, which would be an indictment because the book of Malachi is an indictment that you're offering ritual to me, not real worship. And the book of Malachi raises up the question, is it ritual or is it worship? Is it reality or is it worship that you're doing? Because they got back in the land and they started bringing in lame and broken and bruised and blemished offerings. And to God, they stopped tithing. They stopped. uh, They started divorcing their wives. And, And Malachi says, what are you doing? He even asked them the question, will a man rob God after all that God has done for you? And they said, well, where have we robbed you? He said, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. I asked a police officer in our church several years ago. I said, what's the difference between a thief and a robber? Because the word says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But God doesn't call them in Malachi thieves. He said, well, a man robbed God. And he told me, my officer told me, he said, listen, a thief is somebody that will take your property or your money when you're not around. He said, but a robber is one that walks up in your face and takes your property. And God said, will you walk up in my face and call it worship and then rob me? Is it ritual? Is it reality? Is it ritual or is it worship? And verse four was a prophetic fulfillment because God let them stay in the land. And then all of a sudden, God, God got silent for decades. 
And then all of a sudden, a man named John the Baptist, a prophet, rises up. And again, his message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He announces a brand new kingdom. Christ is born. Christ comes in 30 years later, dies on the cross. And when it is time for their visitation, it's interesting that the Jews reject the Messiah that God has sent to redeem them, not only from their current dilemma, but also from their sin. When they reject Jesus, Pilate says the blood's going to be on your hands. When the religious leaders stand up and say, not only on our hands, but on our children's heads. And in 33 AD, when they made that pronouncement, by 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem brick by brick, stone by stone. And from 70 AD until, listen, 1948, Israel was non-existent. It wasn't 70 years captivity this time prophetically, but it was from 70 AD until 1948. A nation disappeared. The Jewish diaspora is that Jews were scattered like Deuteronomy said they would if they would not obey the law. They were scattered all up into uh, the Roman Empire. They were scattered all through the European basin and then up into Europe. And just like Deuteronomy 28 said, they had no rest. Probably the most notable persecution they experienced was under Adolf Hitler. Where six million Jews were were put in concentration camps and wiped out until finally the world council said, these people need a land. They gave them some resource, some military equipment and sent them back to the land that they believed that was theirs. And they fought their way and established a base chair that is now called Israel. It's a, it's a mere figure of what God had promised Israel and Abraham. It's about the size of the state of New Jersey. There are many more Jews in New York and in New Jersey than there are even in Israel today. Deuteronomy 28 became true. They became a byword, a password. And friends, even when you go to Israel today, many people believe that Israel is a religious center. I've been there seven times. I've talked to Jews. And I asked them, do you celebrate Passover? Do you celebrate Pentecost? Do you celebrate Shabbat? Do you celebrate? And many of them say, I don't even go to worship except for on the high holy day sometime. I've talked to numerous Jews out there. And I said, well, are you Jewish? And I said, is Judaism a culture? I said, is it a family lineage or is it a religion? And they say, yes, it's all three. Some of us is just a culture. I call myself a Jew because my daddy was a Jew. But I don't worship God because how could a God that is just let six million people get wiped out? Many are agnostics and atheists, but there are just a little remnant. Hear me now. That still worships God. And literally verse number four, I know I'm tearing here a while. Happened historically. I'm tearing here for a while because don't think that the church is going to skate out of here doing what we're doing right now and God not get our attention. He will fulfill what he said. Because he is a faithful God, his word will come to pass. Follow me now into chapter four as we continue tonight for just a few moments because now God brings an indictment because if God's going to bring judgment, he has to bring a case. So well, what did we do? And in chapter four, stay with the text now. It says, hear the word of the Lord. You children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. 
Notice his first indictment. There is no truth in the land or mercy. We find out in Israel from some of the other prophets that they were oppressing the poor and they were compromising their standards of mercy. It says there's no truth in the land, that there is no mercy in the land or knowledge of God in the land. It says by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint, bloodshed with bloodshed upon bloodshed. During this day, Israel had cast all restraint. And it says, in the land there will mourn. He's speaking prophetically now of Israel. It's kind of moved in the book now from Hosea and Gomer to dealing with a nation. And that's what I want to deal with today. Of people inside of a nation who are supposed to hold a standard. And he says, and therefore the land will mourn. Because not only will our children be impacted if we don't hold this standard. But the whole land will be impacted. It says, therefore the land will mourn. And everyone who dwells there will waste away. Uh, it says, with the beast of the field and with the birds of the air and even the fish of the sea will be taken away. You see, Israel had cast off all restraint, uh, says the verse here. And when it's, when you and I are people who no longer have a restraint that's put on us, you know, whatever we feel right in our own eyes, we can just do it. And some people do it because they have an erroneous ideal about God's grace doesn't have God's truth and God's judgment in it. God still evaluates his people. And friends, God gives us three words that are critical that you write down tonight. He gives us permission. He gives us prohibition and he gives us restraint. Three words. Permission. Permission says you ought to do this. He gives us Prohibition. You ought not do that. And he gives us restraint. Take control in doing this. Restraint is just control or temperance in doing this. So there is permission, prohibition, and restraint. One of the challenges when we walk with the grace of God is that we begin to cast off permission, prohibition, and restraint. That's what God did in Adam, in an original man in the garden. Put him in a garden. He says, listen, here's permission. Eat of every tree of the garden. Here's prohibition. The tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat of it or you'll die. The ideal now is to restrain yourself from eating of that tree. Control yourself. God gives you 999 trees to eat of. He says, that one is mine. Leave it alone. You and I can even pick up the tithe principle from there. God gives you everything, but then he says, well, part of it's mine. Don't touch it. And though tithe is not mentioned there, he says that there is restraint on everything that you have. You, God doesn't mind you eating cake. Just don't eat the whole thing. At once. Hallelujah. So restraint is necessary. And whenever you find a nation that's becoming obese, that lets us know that we've cast off restraint. And many times it's not the devil killing us. We've eaten ourselves into the grave. And friends, they cast off restraint. He tells you that you should be the husband of one wife. But when you and I forget prohibition, permission and restraint, Now, no, I want multiple wives. Well, we already read in Hosea, you know, even Solomon, 
or Nehemiah, even Solomon went astray with multiple wives. And now folks don't even, if he's a man, doesn't he want multiple wives? Now he wants a man in the mix. We've cast off all kind of restraint. Restraint says you wait until you're married for a certain kind of pleasures and activities. But now we just cast off restraint and say, oh no, 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 I can do that now. I want it now, casting off restraint. I had some youth that I was in a youth meeting and when I deal with my youth, I deal with them straight. I said, now listen, apostle is not a, is not, is not bilingual. I don't know all this hip hop language and all the northern terminologies and figures of speech. I'm just going to talk plain to you. So you have to bear with me. I'm not bilingual. And I was talking about them about sexual purity. And, uh, one young man said, well, what's wrong with just having sex with whoever you want to, whenever you want to. And one young lady said, well, yeah, that's right. And several years ago, I said, you said, yeah, that's right. You want to have sex with whoever you want to, whenever you want to? She said, yeah. And I said, is that your boyfriend? She said, yeah. I said, why don't you have sex right here, right now? We were in the chapel of our church. And she said, what? I said, why don't you have sex right here? With whoever you want to, whenever you want to, do it right here. We'll watch. She said, well, I can't do that. And I said, why not? She said, because this is a church. And I said, and what else? And she said, it's not the right place. It's not the right time. I said, that's all I'm saying. Then I looked at him. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? I act like one of those athletes. You know, I went down the field and you know what I'm saying. And I went, caught the ball. You know what I'm saying? And I ran down there and got six. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Well, how'd you feel? Well, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Lord, help us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There needs to be restraint. And I told him, listen, listen, even with your finances, there needs to be restraint. You don't spend everything you have. I said, that's why you have a checking account and a savings account. I said, and your sexual desires are like your two accounts. I said, now listen, when you're single and unmarried, your sexual desires and appetite go in your savings account. You put it away for a future day. I said, then when you say I do, you take it out of your savings account and put it in your checking account. So that you can make regular withdrawals. Permission, prohibition, and restraint. And I said, if we could just make some plain analogies, I said, you just don't do everything that you want to do without control. I said, otherwise, you're going to become cheap. You won't value what God has done. And God doesn't give us permission, prohibition, and restraint to keep us from having fun. He values us. He knows what's best for us. You know what happened to Israel? Part of the indictment was that They had just cast off restraint. And friends, I believe that we need to model as adults and as Christians restraint again. I heard Fred Price one time said, I can't listen to a fat preacher preach. And I said, what? And he said, he said, if he can't control his body, how can he control anything else in his life? Now, I don't know how all y'all feel about that. Dr. Price says some things, you know, that (laughs) he's known to be 
an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> but Dr. Price just kind of tells it straight. He said, if a man can't control his body, how can he control anything else? And friends, I believe that above all people in the earth, we as a kingdom, we need to start understanding restraint again. Fasting teaches us restraint. When you and I restrain ourselves and once a week we say, I'm going to do a normal fast from sunup to sundown. You know what it does? It helps to bring restraint on this body. We have 40 days of prayer and during our 40 days of prayer between Lent, Ash Wednesday and, and uh, Palm Sunday, I'll ask our church to fast once a week, a normal fast. And a normal fast for us is sunup to sundown, water only. And some of my members came to me and they said, I didn't know how out of control I was. I couldn't give up food for one day from sunup to sundown. They said, in fact, I was catching myself watching the watch. Now, you know, it's, it's bad. When folks go on the farmer's almanac to find out what time sundown <laughs> really is. Because apostle said from sunup to sundown. So then I had to stand up the second week and I said, when it's light, fast. When it's dark, you can have something. Because we've lost restraint. We don't know how to say no to this flesh. And his first indictment is that you've cast off restraint. And these three boundaries, permission, prohibition, and restraint bring the very government of God into our lives. But that's not all he says. In verse number four of chapter four, he goes on and he makes this statement. He says here uh, in, or in verse number three, he says, therefore the land shall mourn and everyone who dwells there shall waste away the beast of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea will be taken away. And then in verse number four, he says, now let no man contend or rebuke one another. It says for your people. Now he starts giving an indictment of why you're going into this kind of judgment. Your people are like those who contend with the priest. Even when the priests were telling them to be right, the people wanted to fight with the priest when they knew the priest was right. Why are we fighting with our religious leaders? Because they tell us the truth. It says, therefore you shall stumble in the day. It says the prophets shall stumble with you in the night and I will destroy, uh, destroy uh, your mother. And, and that is the land, the nation from which you were born. It says, watch this now. It says, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge because they rejected knowledge. You see, when people preach like I've been preaching to you this week and they start talking about permission, prohibition, restraint, talk about repentance. There's a lot of people that don't want that kind of knowledge anymore. Most people are just saying, just tell me I can do anything and get forgiveness. Listen, forgiveness is something that God gives us as a benefit, but forgiveness to me is like a spare tire in your car. It's like that little donut. That little donut is not meant for you to put on your car and just roll around on all the time. The donut is for, if you have a breakdown, you go out and take that out or call AAA and have them put it on. And they put it on and it's to get you to the next place to get a real tire fixed so that you can put it on the car, get it fixed. And then you take the donut off and put it back in the trunk until the next time. Man, if you roll around and on your donut all the time in my city, they would call you ghetto fabulous. Especially if you got a luxury car like a Mercedes or something. And you got a donut on there and you rolling around in there for six months. You can't afford a tire. <laughs> Something's wrong. And a lot of folks are just rolling around on forever. Well, I'll just get forgiveness. 
Okay, because I know God will forgive me for anything. Listen, after a while, we keep playing with God like that. He says, my people have rejected knowledge, lack knowledge. You, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because we have rejected knowledge. I will reject you and you will no longer be a priest to me. Because you rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being a priest to me because you have forgotten the law of the Lord. When God's leaders hear me, not only the reason that the people are in trouble is because God's leaders have forgotten their standard. And this one hurts my heart because I'm a leader in the kingdom of God. Because I am a leader in the kingdom of God. And I see leaders sometimes doing things and talking about things that are just not sacred. He said, because you have forgotten and rejected my law, I also will reject your children. Your children are going to feel this. Stay with the text now in verse 4 and verse number 7. It says, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. And they changed my glory in the shame. One of the dangers of increase is that when you are and I are in covenant with God, God does multiply everything that we set our hand to do. But sometimes just because you and I are being prosperous, many people believe that that is God's endorsement, that they're doing right. Which is why many times over the last decade, we have seen people who are leaders of large churches and large ministries and doing notable things. And then all of a sudden we hear about them having affairs. We hear about them embezzling money. We hear about them doing right. And people say, well, how could they do all of this and have this thing going on in their life? Because one of the dangers of increase is that the more we increase, the more we begin to be deceived that we're right with God when we know in our heart that we're not. You can never measure your righteousness with God by the stuff you have. Lots of people live in big houses and are sinners. Lots of people have lots of money in the bank and they're sinners. Your bank account does not determine your righteousness. Listen, your house size and your square footage doesn't determine your righteousness. The number of people in your church doesn't mean that you're righteous. The number of people that come and listen to us preach doesn't mean that we're righteous. That's just the surpassing grace of God. It's his goodness, his forbearance, and his long suffering that brings us to repentance. And he indicts them because of their increase, and yet they sinned more. And he says, I will change your glory in the shame. Verse number eight, he says, they eat up the sin of the people and they set their hearts on iniquity. When you and I are constantly setting our hearts on things that are evil continually, God needs to get a heart, hold of our heart. Verse number nine is what one of the major problems is in our church in America. It shall be like people, like priests. Like people, like priests. The people take their lead from the priest. My wife and I were flipping through the channels and we saw a guy doing a comedy routine one night and I stopped because he was pretty funny. But then he started swearing. And as I was getting ready to turn from that channel, I made mention of the fact that I saw this guy and he was doing this kind of religious, funny kind of deal. And I said, I was listening to it. It was pretty, uh, I said, hilarious. I said, then he started cussing. And they said, what was his name? And I gave him the name. They said, well, he goes to one of the churches in our city. And they said, probably if you watch that routine, he probably did a shout out to his bishop at the end of his comedian routine. And I said, well, I didn't stay that long. They said, you know why he cusses? I said, no. They said, because his bishop cusses from the pulpit. 
John MacArthur has written several articles in the last couple of years about why cussing should not be done from the platform and from the pulpit of the church. Because some people trying to be keep it real is a new statement. I'm just trying to keep it real. You don't have to be vulgar to keep it real. You have to cuss and use words, swear words to keep it real. You can be plain and not vulgar and dirty and unclean. But when my heart is set on iniquity and I'm filling my heart with iniquity and I'm bringing in people that I know cuss. I remember the first time that Steve Harvey went to Megafest and he said a, a, a swear word. And, and, and he said, well, Bishop Jakes knows that I cuss. And I said, what are you doing up there? Now he's cleaned it up some now because I think that he got pulled in the back room. And somebody ought to pull you in the back room. Pull you in the basement, pull you in the woodshed. <laughs> pull you somewhere. Because like people like priests, when the priests are messed up, everybody's going to be messed up. I'm reminded of our country. When Bill Clinton stood in the White House and said, oral sex is not sex. It opened up to a whole generation that oral sex is not sex. Now sexual mouth, uh, 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 sexually transmitted diseases of the mouth on the rise said that the center, uh, says is a center of disease control because kids are saying that they're still virgin, but they're having oral sex now. Because the president said so. Uh, I'm afraid of this generation because our president recently has said that same-sex marriage is all right. I've done my evaluation and I've now made my conclusion. And when a leader sets the standard for a nation, like people, like priests, churches set the standard, parents set the standard, teachers set the standard. Presidents set the standards. Politicians set the standard. And don't you think that when you and I aspire to a leader, you and I need to make sure if we aspire to a leader that what we say to the people is right and what we leave before them is right because they take their cues from us. I have found out that the men in my church take their cues from me. I remember when I used to wear three piece suits, a, a, a jacket, a vest, slacks, and a tie. All the men in my church, almost 90% wore a two piece suit, shirt, and tie. When I started wearing a two-piece shirt and tie, they started wearing jackets and slacks. When I wear jackets and slacks, most of them will come with an open collar on. If I wear jackets and slacks and an open collar, most of them will have a shirt and slacks on. If I come with shirt and slacks, they'll wear jeans. If I wear jeans and, and a polo shirt, they'll come with jogging suits on. We ain't going no further. <laughs> I found out that the men in our church will do a little bit less than I do. If that's true in dress, what do you think it's going to happen with morals and with standards and with marriage and with everything else? If you and I are leaders in the family or in the community and church, we must hold the standard. They had cast off restraint. They had rejected knowledge. The more they uh, increase, the more they sin. And then he says, and like people, like priests, the people were looking at the priests because the priests were the worship leaders. Whenever you see the word priest in the Bible, just think of worship leaders. These were those that led worship. And I believe that worship begins in in the parking lot and goes all the way to the platform. I believe that the people that park a car should be worshipers, should be praying over that ground. I believe that people that greet at the door should be worshipers. They should be praying over the people when they come in. I just met with our greeters. I said, pray over everybody that comes in this door. We've had miracles happen at our door because worshipers are there. 
man came in one time, been involved in a car accident, came in on a cane in our church and he came in and I didn't know it, but a greeter greeted him and he got in our sanctuary and was dancing all over the sanctuary and he would not shut up when we made our transition. I was trying to get into preachers. I got to testify and I came over. I said, well, brother Lay from the Baptist church, he's from the Baptist church. I used to be a part of, and he said, I came here this morning cause at my church, they don't lay hands on sick people. And he said, I came to your church this morning cause Lafayette, you were in our church and I know you lay hands on sick. I was in a car accident. He said, I've been on a cane. He said, my, my back is all out of alignment. He said, I came here for prayer. He said, but one of your greeters greeted me at the door. And he said, I felt a warmth and a popping happened on my back. He said, you've been seeing me dance all up and down there. He said, I'm cured. And he picked up his cane and walked out the church. That's what I'm talking about. From the platform all the way to the, to the parking lot that worship takes place. And no matter where your station is in ministry, you're part of the worship council. If you're putting words up on the screen, you're part of worship. Man, if you're an usher standing in the alleyway, you're part of worship. If you're a leader leading youth or children, I say it like this, from the parking lot to the platform, from the nursery to the elderly, everybody that leads is a worshiper. What we do is we do it as an act of worship and we show and we hold the standard. And when we hold the standard, the standard would then maybe begin to trickle out of the church into the community. Because the reason that the community is messed up is because the church, the standard is messed up. If we're doing all the crazy stuff that people in the community is doing, no matter, no wonder the community is confused. The community can say, well, you say that, but now this is where one of your members is living. And I live next door to him, so I know that. And he says, and this is the indictment. He says, the charge is, is that they eat up the sin of the people. And it says, and they eat up, uh, and their hearts are eaten up with iniquity. Then it says in verse number nine, it shall be like people, like priests. And so I will punish them for their ways and to reward them with their deeds. Verse 10 goes on to say, for they shall eat, but not have enough. It says they shall commit adultery and not increase because they ceased obeying God. Would you look at your neighbor tonight and just say, obey God. Look at somebody on the other side and just say, obey God. Just tell them, obey God. There's a little hymn that just simply its course is, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Isn't that simple? Just obey God because they would not obey God. It says harlotry and wine and new wine. Uh, enslave their hearts. It says, my people ask for counsel at wooden idols and their staff informs them uh, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. If you and I play with something after a while, a spirit will put you in bondage to that something. I'm going to say it again. If you and I play with something after a while, a spirit will bring us into bondage with that thing. And here in verse number 12, he starts talking about the fact that a spirit of harlotry, you play with harlots and you play with harlotry. After a while, a spirit of harlotry will come and keep us wrapped up in that stuff. 
That's why we need to be quick to repent because the devil is not nice. If, if, if he, if you let him build a toe, if you let him get a toehold in your life, he'll get a foothold in your life. If he gets a foothold in your life, he'll build a stronghold in your life. And then there will be bondage. Bondage is tough to dismantle. Once something becomes a stronghold, sometimes people are so deceived, they cannot and they will not repent. And here the indictment comes, a spirit of harlotry has come upon them, for they have played, for they have played the harlot against God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops, indictment again against Israel, and they burn incense on the hills and under the oaks and, and, the, and the poplars and, and the uh, terebinth tree. And uh, because, uh, because their, their shade is good and, and there their daughters commit adultery and, and your brides commit adultery. And I will not punish your daughters uh, when they commit adultery, nor your brides when they commit adultery. Why? Because the men, and why does he make this indictment for the men? For the men themselves go after harlots and after sacrifice with ritual harlots. Therefore, People who do not understand will be uh, trampled. People who do not understand will be trampled. Now listen, men. I know there's women and children here. I'm going to talk to the men for a moment. I went to Washington, D.C. two years ago. I was called there with a group that's called Pure Hope. And this group is specialization as a ministry to men. Men dealing with internet pornography. Talking straight to men now. Used to be if you were going to get pornography, it was behind the counter. You had to ask somebody and sheepishly be embarrassed. Then they put up pornographic stores. I don't know what happens in, in uh, Massachusetts, but in Ohio, we have pornographic stores where there's pornography, where the magazines and videotapes and all those kind of things I'm told are sold. And for a man to go in there, most of the time, we did uh, have some groups in our church and some groups in our churches uh, do pickets in front of these places. We did not want them in our neighborhoods. And guys would drive in with hoods on their on, on, on covering their faces and long caps, dark glasses, disguises. And we'd ask them, why are you hiding? If what you're doing is right, what you hiding for? Why are you kind of sliding into the place and covering up your head? Because you know it's wrong. You don't want anybody videotaping you. Now with cell phones, you know, you can get caught. But you know what the devil's done now? He's gone viral. You can sit at your computer, your laptop, your iPad. I mean, you could pull up anything that's there. And internet pornography has become an addiction in the kingdom of God. Pure Hope is a Christian ministry, and they said 60% of all men are addicted to pornography. In the church. I said 60% you're lying. And they start going back and they started reading the statistics. And now many people like James Dobson and Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council are confirming the same. Inner that pornography among Christian is pandemic. And I wonder why this text said, but I'm not going to blame your daughters. And I'm going to blame your bride because the men have gone after harlotry. You brought in a spirit of harlotry. I found out that, that there are certain chemicals that are released, released in the brain that are more addictive than cocaine when a man watches pornography. And like cro- cocaine, Once you begin to do that over and over again, you start chasing that first high. Like a crack addict and like a cocaine addict. And there has to be a detox and sometimes even accountability programs to get a man delivered. Hear me now. 
it is so addictive that what happens is now they have found that there's a string between watching pornography and prostitution. There's a link between internet pornography. Then watching isn't enough. Now we got to act it out. And then there's a link between that and sex trafficking. It's a continuum. Internet pornography, then prostitution, then sex trafficking. And I was called to Washington from Central Ohio because they were interested in cutting off sex trafficking. But I said, well, where's the root? And they took us on our track back to the root. And they said, the first time that man pulled up that image on that computer and started, because if there was no customers, there would be no business. We need to get delivered. And that's why I'm a proponent for every man in here. When your pastor calls a men's meeting, come. God saw this day coming in. In Deuteronomy 16, 16, God told Israel three times a year, all the men of Israel shall come up to worship me. At the feast of Passover, Deuteronomy 16, 16, the feast of Pentecost, and the feast of weeks called the feast of tabernacles, all men are required to appear before me for sacrifice, for purity, and for learning. There's a reason for that. Because the way that the man goes is the way that the home is going to go. The way that the home is going to go is the way that the community is going to go. The way the community is going to go is the way that the city is going to go. The way that the city will go will be the way that the region go. The way that the regions go is the way that the nation go. The way that the nations go is the way that the world goes. We live in a sex-crazed world. You can't even turn on TV anymore. There's stuff on television that when I was coming up was what you couldn't even watch now. Now it's on regular stations. I said, what? As my wife one time, when did they start doing, uh, you know, uh, rear end shots and breast shots on, on public television? She said, oh boy, where you been? The standard has fallen. But that's because we have perverted men, men that are sexually addictive to pornography. And it just doesn't stay there. We start chasing it now. It's not only watching, but down there. And that's not new to our day today. That's why I'm coming against the church and coming to the church and saying we need to stop this behavior. If we need to get delivered, delivered. If we need a 12-step program, do it. There are now computer programs that you can put on your computer if you're a man and you have this problem. It's accountability programs. And it will dial up a number. So if you're going to a website that should not be there, it will dial it and it will call you up and say, what are you watching? Get on the phone. It's a filter. Christians have started that just to monitor that every man needs to take communion over his computer. I've done it myself. When I got my iPad, I put my iPad on my desk and I got out the grape juice and I got out the bread and I said, Lord, I am making a covenant with you that I will not pull up anything on this iPad that is un- unclean. I would not pull up any naked women. I would not pull up any sexual acts on this iPad that's unclean. I'm using this as a tool for myself and for the kingdom. And I said, and I'm putting the bloodline between me and it. I did that with my laptop. I did that with my iPad. And friends, you and I, we need to do a covenant today. Because he said the way that the nation goes, it's because that's the way the men were going. He says, therefore, the people that don't even understand will be trapped. See, when you and I do that kind of stuff, there are all kind of heathens out there. And friends, when they have Christian conventions in cities, it's sad to say, X-rated movies in hotels go up at Christian conventions. 
And now we're starting to find out that that whole internet pornography is now bleeding over the women. I used to only think that it was the naked girl that jumped out of the cake at bachelor parties. Now I'm finding out that Chippendale show up at girl parties now. Girls are inviting men to strip at their parties now. Lap dancing. I'm not being vulgar. I'm being informative. And if it was just out there, that would be one thing. But Hosea's indictment does not come with just unholy people out there. His indictment comes to people that are in here. He says, won't you return? Verse 15, as we wrap this up now, Ray, you can come to the keyboard. Pastor Ray, it says, uh, though you, Israel, play the harlot. Let not Judah offend. Do not come to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Avon, nor swear an oath as the Lord lives. You see, verse 16 goes on. It says, Israel's just stubborn, like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forge like a lamb in open country. Ephraim, which is a metaphor for Israel, is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. Their, um, their, 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 they've committed harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love this honesty. And the wind has wiped her up in her wings, wrapped her up in her wings. They should be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Friends, one of the things that happens is when you and I continually play the harlot, after a while, we stray from the Lord. You and I can stray so far that you and I get called in verse number four, four, or three, four, to captivity. Here's a good news I want to give you before we leave tonight. I still believe a little scripture in in uh, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, because Solomon foresaw this day coming, and Solomon said, "If we worship you for a while, God, and we strain, will you utterly cast us out?" And and God, if we worship you for a while, and then we commit iniquity, will you utterly cast us out? And God, if we worship you for a while, and then we commit wickedness, will you cast us out? And during the dedication of the center of worship, the temple, God says this to Israel in Colossians or Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. He says, if my people, if my people, I think we need to stop there and meditate on that word. If my people, God doesn't just call America. He just doesn't call Republicans and Democrats. He calls his people. I believe we are the ones that control the spiritual temperature of the nation. I don't believe that we're just a a temperature gauge. I don't believe that we're a thermometer that can just tell the temperature. It's cold. It's icy. I believe we ought to be a thermostat. And we can turn up the fire. We can say, even quickly, come Lord Jesus. Come and give me. If my people who are called by my name. Are you called by the name of the Lord tonight? If so, say yes. It says, she'll humble themselves. And the humble ourselves, hear me now, 
as we prepare for our close because uh, humbling ourselves might mean that I take intercessory responsibility for all that's going around me. You know what intercessory responsibility is? It means that I enter into the pain of the nation. I enter into the pain of the church. And even if I'm an innocent, even if that's not my problem, I can say we have sinned. See, an intercessor just can't stand back and talk about those folks who are doing this and those folks who are doing that. No, an intercessor has to enter into the pain and into the sin of the people that they're praying for. And they have to take ownership. And intercessors have to say to God what wicked people don't know to say to God. That's why you're standing in the gap. You're saying we have sinned. We have done this wickedness. We have cast off this restraint. We have played this harlotry. We are addicted in internet pornography. We have fallen apart and our sons and daughters are going astray. God, we need your help. And intercessors need to be called to task today to begin to stand in the gap and to begin to cry out for God, for the land and for the nation and for the people and for the children. If we humble ourselves and pray. And then it says in this, seek his face. Seek in his face, say, God, I want, I want to see your face again. Only you, God, can bring us out of the mess. And that's my cry at my altar today. Only God, you can bring us out of this mess. I don't want to be looking funny at every man. I want to assume that every man is holy. Every man is living right. But God, I want to seek your face. That if a man, even myself, needs to be dealt with, Father, that we'll seek your face on a daily basis. I don't want to crack. I don't want a toehold or a foothold or a stronghold or a bondage in my life this day. God, cut it out of us. God, I don't want a look or a glance that would bring harlotry into the church, whether it's idolatry or physical harlotry or immorality in the church. I don't want it, God. And intercessors has to cry out for the nation and for the church and for its people. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. Seek my face. Now listen to this one. And turn from their wicked ways. Could that imply that there are some wicked ways in his people? I know my confession is I have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But also there are times when I recognize my ways are not his ways. Nor my thoughts his thoughts. There's times when I have to cry out, created me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit in me. I know I still struggle with some areas. I know if somebody hurts me, I want to hurt them back. If somebody hurts my family, I want to go get them. I came up with that law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and I was a protector of my family. I still, I, I struggle with turn the other cheek. I know some of y'all are holy, but I struggle with that. You hit me, man. brother railed back to hit me. I looked at him and I looked his dad in his eye and I said, I ain't one of them kind of Christians. He backed off of that. You hear me, brother? Okay, I got you. Yeah, I thought you was feeling me right there. Yeah, man. I said, I ain't one of no kind of brothers, man. You don't want to do that. And I struggled and I have to ask God to constantly work on me. Constantly. Work on me because there's still areas I have not come all that way. And if my people will call by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I love the clause because his promises are conditional because they're covenantal. Then I will hear from heaven. How many of you want God to hear from heaven? Then I will forgive the sin. How many of you want the sin of the church forgiven? And listen to this, it will affect not only the church, but the land. How many of you want him to heal the land? 
Could you just begin to stir up your spirit? Because I might have hit some issues that are your issue. And I want you to just begin to pray and cry out for God's church and cry out for this nation right now for the next few moments. Because all of us see the wickedness, but somebody has to cry out right now. Oh God, today we bring before you, first of all, your people. Your people, the church in the United States of America. Your people, the church in Seekonk. Your people, the church in Massachusetts. Your people, the church in the United States, in in New England. And oh God, we cry out to you. We cry out to you because we say we have sinned. We have come short in your sight. Oh God, we have not done what we were supposed to do. We have not said what we were supposed to say. We have not gone where we were supposed to go. We have not done what we were supposed to do. But God, we have set for ourselves priests. And now like priests, like people. And God, we ask you, first of all, to forgive us, Father, for that which we have modeled in terms of wickedness. Oh God, we humble ourselves and we say, without you, God, nothing can be done through your church. God, without you, the cleansing can never happen today, Father, in the church. And oh God, we come before you, we cry out because it's not just for us, it's for our kids, it's for our grandkids, it's for our great grandkids. And oh God, we admit that we cry out not because we're perfect, but because we also struggle. Jesus, we know that we struggle, but we bring our struggle to you because you are strength, you are help. And God, even in the midst of the struggle in your church, I pray in Jesus' name, God, that we will struggle and we'll wrestle until we get it right. Because, God, we won't let go of you until you bless us and make us right with your righteousness. We want to see you clothe us with rule, with wool and be our covering. We want to see you clothe us with linen and be our righteousness. And, God, let none of these sins that we have mentioned tonight be named once among us. Make our president righteous once we become righteous. Make our mayors righteous once we become righteous. Make our governors righteous once we become righteous. Make our legislators and our senators righteous once we become righteous. Father, we are the spiritual thermostat and we stand in this pulpit and we preach this week let us return unto the Lord forgive us God forgive us God forgive us for murdering babies forgive us for for pornography forgive us for harlotry forgive us for sexual trafficking forgive us for flirting with prostitutes forgive us for all of that wickedness today forgive us God Forgive us for laughing at things that you call wickedness. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, God, for being entertained by that which is wicked. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, God, for not holding to your standard. Every time we grinned and we laughed at something that was untoward, something that was wicked, Father, admit that we were in agreement with it. We thought it was funny, but you're not winking at our ignorance anymore. And, oh, God, we stand and say we have sinned. And it's manifesting itself in the next generation. God, you called Israel as a standard for the nation and you called the church as a standard for the nation inside the nation. And God, give the church the former glory that she's fallen from. Oh God, because there was a time when the church was alive and it was vibrant. There was a time, Father, when the church was used, Father, to be a voice in the land. And now, Father, we've lost some of that. Oh God, but today I come before you and I implore you in Jesus' name to change us and to transform us today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that right here at Faith Christian Center, not global, but specific, that you'll begin a work of revival because it's in repentance and worship and in the presence of the Lord that revival begins. 
God just sent a man named Charles Finney through this region years ago and revival happened and Father, millions of, uh, Father, hundreds of thousands of people came to you. Oh God, you sent people, Father, that have been voices into this region in days past. And Father, hundreds of thousands of people came to you. And God, if you did it then, you can do it again. And God, if there was ever a day that we needed revival, we needed a touch of the Holy Ghost, we needed a refreshing, we needed, uh, Father, your presence, we needed revival, this is that day. Oh God, revive us, ignite your fire of holiness and righteous living in us again today. We need you more than ever before. Oh God, do the work in us and through us and among us in Jesus' name. Now, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for everything that you desire to do in us because of this word that says, if your people who are called by your name shall humble themselves and pray, seek your face, let your face be seen in us and through us and among us. Oh God, we want to see your face. Want to see your eyes. We want to see what you see in the way that you see it. In your face, Father, as your nose, we want to smell holiness all through the sanctuary. How we want to see your face. We want to see that your lips still drip with myrrh. You died for us, but we want to hear your voice through your lips. When we seek your face, we want to hear as you hear. And we hear the Spirit saying to the church, repent and return to me, return to your first love. Oh God, do this work in us and through us and among us. We believe you for that. And we thank you for it. Make us clean. Blessed are the pure in spirit. Pure in heart for theirs is the kingdom of God. Create in us a clean heart. Renew in us a right spirit. God, help us to respond the way that Jesus would respond. Father, give us back our permission, our prohibition and our restraint. And we thank you for it now. In Jesus' name.